Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. I'm also the creator of the online public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. And you can learn about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Morabaja. He is an astrophysicist and he has his own Wikipedia page. And he's the first guest I, I've spoken to that I can, I can say that for. Uh, he's also a professor and he's a founder. I, when I think about astrophysics, I think about that show, The Big Bang Theory. But I don't think of any of those main characters as public speakers, but he's, Dr. Ja is that too. He's even a, a TED fellow. So I'm really interested to learn more about his journey in astrophysics, how he became a founder and the ways in which public speaking has benefited him. Welcome to the Teach the Geek interviews, Morba. Hey, look, uh, thank you so much uh, for having me, Neil. So from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got degrees in aerospace engineering. What motivated you to get that degree? Well, Interestingly enough, um, it started off after high school. I enlisted in the U.S. Air Force, and it was my job to be a security guard, basically, for um, nuclear missiles in Montana. And it was the first time in my life that I'd been in a place with really dark skies. Uh, I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela, a city with lots of lights and that sort of stuff. And on a good night, maybe you could see the moon. But when I was in Montana at night, I mean, I looked up at the sky and it was like peppered with, you know, galaxies, stars, like all this stuff. And it was a very moving moment for me because I didn't realize that uh, the universe was really so populated. Um, and during these night shifts, I'd see these dots of light go by that were not meteors and they weren't planes. And when I started chasing down like, you know, what, what, what were these things? Uh, it turns out that these things were human-made objects orbiting the earth that were reflecting sunlight. And I could see these things with my naked eye. And that was like, wow, it was, it was, I mean, I'm like, that is really cool. And I want to know more about that. So I studied aerospace engineering. I focused on astrodynamics, which is the science that studies motion of stuff in space. Oh, nice. But then I, you didn't stop with just an undergraduate degree. You went on and, and, and got master's and, and PhDs as well. So what was the, the motivation to go on to graduate school? Well, you know, uh, the bachelor's degree really just kind of gives you a flavor of what engineering and problem solving is about. But it didn't really give me the depth of knowledge that I really wanted to achieve. So graduate school seemed like uh, it had to happen for me if I wanted to be able to satisfy uh, this kind of curiosity. And so, yeah, I went on to University of Colorado at Boulder to do that. And the interesting thing is that, you know, the, the, the consequence of me going to graduate school and, and really getting deeper into astrodynamics uh, resulted in me, you know, working for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory as a spacecraft navigator sending stuff to Mars. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, I did mention in the intro that you're a professor. Was it always the goal to, to stay in academia? No, no. In fact, I felt a, a, a strong allergy to being an academic. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm like, you know, that, 
it's not for me. I want to leave school. I want to roll up my sleeves. I want to get out into the world and do stuff, get my hands dirty. And, uh, and so that's what I did. So never in a million years, uh, you know, did I imagine that, um, you know, later in my career and my life that I would be, uh, you know, coming back to academia and that, and that academia would actually um, have a place for me. Um, Cause you know, there, there's a lot of rigidity um, with, within academia and I'm just like very different. <laughs> right. <laughs> Got you. So what was the, I guess the, the motivation to go back to academia if it wasn't even in the plans? Well, you know, after uh, being at NASA for about six years and then with the Air Force Research Laboratory for about a decade, um, there are problems that I wanted to solve that I wasn't really able to solve outside of academia. And I wanted to have some um, intellectual freedom to pursue some of these things and the latitude to do that. Um, and so academia seemed like it could afford me the opportunity to do that. And uh, luckily I had kept up with you know, publications and that sort of stuff to make myself competitive for an academic position. And uh, yeah, and so that that turned out to, to work out for me here at the University of Texas at Austin. Yeah, you know, people like you, I always find rather interesting because at least for, the, for what I understand, the majority of people who get these PhDs and go into academia, they are or, or, or in academia, it's something they do right away. They don't necessarily go elsewhere and then come back. So it's always interesting to, to talk to people like yourself who were who went away for a while, but, but as you mentioned, stayed competitive enough to be able to go back. And it's, it's great that you were able to have that kind of, of flexibility. With the work that you do now as a professor, what is, I guess, what is your, your research? What kind of research are you working on? So the research that I'm working on is really trying to monitor, quantify, assess, predict uh, behavior of human-made objects in space mostly focused in things uh, around Earth these days and how we have a huge space garbage problem uh, in that, you know, in 1957, the, you know, the world launched Sputnik, uh, Soviet Union at the time. And now it's 2022. We're currently tracking like 50,000 objects ranging in size from a cell phone to the space station in Earth orbit, out of which like 5,000 are working and everything else is garbage. It's like 90, 90% of all the stuff that we track that humans are responsible for is trash. And so my research is really trying to focus on space environmentalism. You know, what's contributing to this problem? Can we do things to mitigate this sort of stuff? Understand, you know, the, the, the reason why this is occurring and, and come up with possible solutions to help like flatten the curve on the spread of, of the garbage and that sort of thing. Oh, wow. We need to get some bins up there and put all that space garbage in them. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 you're actually the first person I've spoken to on, on this topic of, of space garbage. It's really interesting to hear that so much of, of what's up there and what, what, what we're tracking is just, just junk, just, just, <laughs> just, just, just up there. So I guess, is it difficult to get all the, the various, uh, I guess, the pertinent countries on the same page as to what we should do about the space garbage problem? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, one of the things that I've had, um, you know, the, the, the honor to be able to do during my career is to, you know, be on the U.S. delegation to the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in Vienna. And I will say that in that venue, um, you know, very recently, very recently, um, 
93 countries by consensus signed an agreement on these are the these are the things that we could do that should result in long-term sustainability of outer space. So at least they agreed to that. Uh, now the question is, how are these countries interpreting that, implementing that? Um, and, and that's the next phase. So that's, that's what I'm focused on is how are countries now moving to implement that within their own nations and, and, and are they gonna hold their own people you know, accountable and responsible for their behaviors in space? You know, I was just thinking it's only a certain number of countries that have ever really sent anybody up into into space. So of those 93 countries, is it possible that some of them are, would think, well, we weren't responsible for all that stuff ended up in space. Why is it my problem? A lot. In fact, I would say most of the African countries that I speak to that have space programs or satellites um, have that sort of sentiment like, you know, Basically, the United States, China, and Russia are the three culprits for most, uh, you know, 99% of the garbage up there. So why should other countries, um, you know, have to be beholden or anything like that to that? And um, the unfortunate thing, Neil, right, is that, you know, even if we go to a beach and the beach is littered by three people, we as people that want to enjoy the beach uh, still have to live with that filth. And so um, if we just sit and say, hey, three people litter the beach and, you know, I'm not going to do anything uh, because it's not my problem. Well, it is everybody's problem, unfortunately. And somehow we all have to come together to try to solve this thing, even if three countries are mostly responsible for the garbage in space. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but I, yeah, I, I see what the African countries are saying too. <laughs> it's just like, so yeah. we, gotta, yeah. we gotta spend our resources to, 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 to clean up a problem that wasn't ours. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And and so it would be, it would be very interesting, Neil, if somehow, um, you know, the world could come together, the, you know, US, China, Russia could recognize the detriment of uh, the burden of the debris on other countries that had nothing to do with causing this sort of stuff and come up with some mechanism, some geopolitical thing. Maybe it's, you know, credits or tariffs for import export, like somehow try to find ways to make, make this sort of thing equitable. Um, that would be, that would be uh, something that I'd be interested in seeing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think maybe the African countries would be open to that as well. I mean, you know, but they'll also say, you know, Russia, U.S., China, you mean you you did the most of this work. You're gonna have to do the most of this this lifting. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll pitch in a little bit. We'll put a little bit on it. But uh, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have to do the majority of the work. But yeah, that, this is really interesting. The the whole idea of there being this this space garbage problem and countries coming together to try to solve it. Because as you as you mentioned, yeah yeah, three countries mainly were the are the culprits. But we all are suffer we all would uh, suffer from I guess the the, the issue moving forward. You know, Doc, uh, Morba, I mentioned also in the intro that you're a founder. So not only are you a professor, but you, you kept a foot outside. Of, it seems like you kept a foot outside of academia to, and founded companies. So what was the motivation for doing that? Well, um, you know, one of the things that I said, you know, the reason for coming back to academia was to have the latitude to be able to pursue a lot of these intellectual uh curiosities that I've had in my ideas and that sort of stuff um, to have that freedom. But then with the things that I've been able to do within academia, what I've been able to put out there have been kind of demonstrations, like here's the art of the possible. 
Um, so state, state of the possible isn't necessarily state of practice. Um, and so then the question is, how do I take state of the possible to become state of practice? Well, that doesn't happen through academia. That happens through commercialization. It ha happens through private industry and these sorts of things. And one of the things that I've been really, uh, you know, feeling for some time now is that, you know, we as a humanity are entering the next renaissance. I'm going to call it like the renaissance encore. And um, much like the original renaissance, there was a flourishing of art and science. Um, that sort of thing, we're ripe for that, you know, now. And in the original renaissance, um, that flourishing of art and science didn't happen because, uh, you know, all these different governments were like, you know, funding grants and that sort of stuff to academics. Um, it happened because one family came together and basically, uh, you know, strapped this on, invested in it and participated in that. And that was the Medici family in Italy. And so one of the things that I've been looking for is, can I find my Medici equivalent within the space community to really take these ideas that I've been working on for some time, state of the possible, and make that into a state of practice to humanity's benefit. And this is when um, you know I uh, basically joined forces with Steve Wozniak and Alex Fielding to to birth privateer space as the mechanism to to do that. Nice. So how is that? How is that? I guess that endeavor, privateer space, going. So far, it's going well. Uh, on March first, uh, we came out of stealth mode. Um, if people go to privateer.com, they're going to see the first thing that we've rolled out there. It's called Wayfinder, um, uh, and and title that because of um, you know indigenous cultures and, and and the trade craft of wayfinding, having a successful conversation with the environment in order to survive. Uh, so we want to have a successful conversation with you know land, air, ocean, and space for humanity to survive. And that's what uh, we're all about. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's so far it's going well. There's, we have a long road ahead of us, uh, but we're very energized, enthusiastic, and we're all about um, really trying to connect to humanity, trying to recruit empathy and compassion for, from people uh, to solve these problems. You know, you know more about a question that I forgot to ask you, but I'm really curious to get your take on is, on earth, we have environmental problems and you work on environmental problems in space. Is it difficult to convince other people that space should be our priority as opposed to what's going on on planet earth? Absolutely. Um, I, I think it, 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 well, I've experienced it as being, uh, you know, monumentally challenging and uh, that's part of what I'm trying to, to fix. Uh, you know, can I, can I become a good enough storyteller to tell this story about space environmentalism in such a way that lets people uh, project themselves into this new perspective, uh, empathy, and then from this place feel compelled to want to do something about it and not see it as somebody else's problem, but as their problem and say, hey, here are the things that space is doing or things that you enjoy on a daily basis uh, services and capabilities provided to you from uh, things in space and there's no protection of these things and that might go away and that would suck. So we should do something about it. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Nice. 
You know, also I mentioned in the, the intro more about that you're a TED fellow. Could you possibly talk about what exactly that means and, and how you became one? Right. So uh, in 2009, uh, TED as an organization uh, had the inaugural set of TED fellows. And my feeling is that um, this TED fellowship was really trying to be a mechanism to get uh, folks from across humanity that never in a million years would make it to a TED conference and, and give a talk. Um, so I was trying to, trying to recruit uh, people with ideas worth, worth uh, sharing, worth spreading from across humanity that, uh, you know, unlikely folks to just show up at a TED conference in Vancouver to do that sort of thing. So now it's like, you know, 2022 uh, in, in 2019, um, I put in my application and basically once a year, they, they, they throw this global pool. And from, from that, the, from the net, uh, they select 20 people. So 20 people are selected from across humanity uh, to become TED fellows. And once you're in the fellowship, then you're kind of always in the fellowship. And I think at this point, we're around 500 total fellows. These are people that are uh, motivated by empathy and compassion to solve wicked problems across humanity that come from you know, all, all parts of the globe. Uh, and it's really, um, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's very emotionally moving to me and meaningful because to me, these TED fellows, I consider them like, you know, the true super friends. Uh, when, when, I, when I, in my cohort in 2019, these other, these other 19 people, um, I looked at them, I'm like, why am I here? Like this person is really awesome. And they're doing this stuff to try to combat police brutality. And this person here is like working on um, engineering foods that basically bypasses the need to like actually grow and slaughter cattle and this sort of stuff. And this person, it's like each one was doing mag you know, amazing stuff. And I was so honored to be um, selected to be um, in this pool. And uh, yeah, so that's what the TED Fellowship's all about. Nice. You know, you know more, but in your work as a professor, I'm sure you have to communicate with students in your work with privateer space, I'm sure you have to communicate with other stakeholders about the importance of the work that you're doing. You know, as a TED fellow, I'm sure you have to communicate with you know broader audiences. And the so the idea of communicating with others is something I'm guessing is is of importance to you. But at what point did you realize that that being adept at communicating with others could be of use to you? <laughs> um, you know, I began things, like I said, as a security guard, I think the first time that I recognized that communication was critical was um, trying to find a way into an aerospace engineering program and that I needed to be, look, I was different. I was, when I went to Embry-Riddle in Arizona, my own uh, advisor was advised me against trying to get into the universities. Like, oh, you know, kind of, he, he did the whole, you know, Yoda, you're too old to begin the training kind of thing. He's like, oh, you're too old to become an aerospace engineer. You're 23. You never took calculus in high school. Um, you're probably not going to make it through this program. People much better and smarter than you uh, don't make it. Like it was, it was horrible. And I recognize that um, unless I become effective at communicating things and including my own needs and, and that sort of stuff that I would not be able to successfully navigate through my own life to get to do the things that I felt compelled that I needed and wanted to do. So I think from 
very, very early on, I recognized that effective communication. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was basically critical to my own survival. Nice. Is that, well, communicating with others, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what'd you do to get better at it? <laughs> um, I don't think that I've always been uh, good at it. Um, practicing uh, has definitely helped out quite a bit and just making myself vulnerable, putting myself out there. Um, just in the, the genuine desire to just connect with people um, as, as a motivator. So yeah, it, it's just um, taking risks. I didn't get good at it until I was, you know, uh, willing to take and embrace the risks involved. And, um, you know, many times I felt ridiculed. Many times I have uh, felt rejected uh, in all sorts of ways and fashions. Uh, that sort of stuff happens to this day. But it's like, my thing is, I say, uh, courage, this is my own definition, courage is the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear. I'm not fearless. Uh, I'm afraid of a lot of stuff, but I, I do try to be courageous. I try to move through that and not let fear stop me from doing things. And I think becoming effective at communication, um, for me, it requires courage. You know, I really like your, I like your definition of courage. I'm going to take it for myself too, but I'll give you credit whenever anyone asks me. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> brother. Good, good. Nice. So when, with, with the presentations that you have to do, do you have a process for, for, for I guess, putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? I, I, um, I try to think about the end. I'm outcome driven. It's like, okay, here's this group of people. I have an opportunity. So that's the other thing too. I always view uh, these sorts of exchanges that I have with others as exchanges. It's not one way. I see it as a two-way thing. I'm looking to learn something and get something from the people that I interact with. So it's really, it's, it's really that sort of um, intellectually, emotionally, mentally transactional for me. I, I want this to be uh, you know, a, a give and take, not one way. And I ask myself, if this is successful, how's the world different or better as a result of this exchange? That's, I start with that as the, 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 the thing that I focus on. And then from there, I say, okay, given that this vision of how the world is positively different or better, how do I need to deliver this? So that that's the, I maximize that as the outcome. That's how I go into all my presentations. Nice. Do you ever get nervous before a presentation? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? <laughs> um, actually, I, 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 I do still. Um, and um, it's something that I actually enjoy. Uh, at first, it was something that was almost crippling. Um, uh, you know, I, I would feel great anxiety and I could just... I, I would actually, my body would start to tremble, uh, you know, before I take a stage and that sort of stuff. And um, that hasn't altogether disappeared, but now instead of like, uh, you know, allowing that to make me feel maybe a little bit inhibited or whatever, I actually look forward to the nervousness. It's like, this is cool. Like, like um, 
um, yeah, I try to have fun with it and, and I, I, I look forward with it. And it's like, when I'm sitting in that nervousness, I just kind of giggle a little bit and I'm a bit giddy. I'm like, yeah, this nervous energy, it's really cool. And I'm going to harness and channel that as soon as I get to the stage or this, that, or the other. So that, that's how I deal with it. You know, when it comes to nervousness, I, I truly believe that if you're not a little nervous before you give a presentation, you probably don't care about the outcome of that presentation. So the fact that you're nervous, given the, 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 the importance of what you talk about, I think is a good thing. So thank you for being nervous. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, for, so last question, Maura, but if someone was listening or watching this interview or this conversation and they, or they want to get better or, or become more effective, at public speaking, what would your number one tip for that person be? Immerse yourself in the pool of humanity and have uh, conversations that uh, might make you feel like you're sitting in discomfort and let yourself tolerate the discomfort because growth will happen as a consequence. Oh man, I'm a full believer in that. <laughs> I actually just mentioned that in an interview that I did not too long ago. And I, I fully agree that that growth comes from discomfort. So if you're avoiding discomfort, you're avoiding getting better, you're avoiding success. So yeah, I, I, I'm full, I fully agree with you there. I lied more about this is my last question. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, look, um, I'm easy to find online. Uh, you know, Moriba at Moriba.com is the easiest way to get a hold of me. I um, I do have an executive assistant, Haley DeVries. So actually the better way to get a hold of me is just to like email team.morba at outlook.com. And then you can get on my calendar and then we'll figure it out from there. Wonderful. Well, everyone that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. I'm also the creator of Teach the Geek to Speak. It's an online public speaking course, and you can learn about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Morba. All right. Aloha. Thank you. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms or on all of them also if you prefer to watch the episodes head on over to the youtube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com until next time